بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وبارك على الأشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا أما بعد فحياكم الله جميعا وبارك الله فيكم الحمد لله this lesson will be the first lesson in a series where we seek to go through the book Umdat al-Fiqh Ibn al-Qudama Rahimahullah which is alhamdulillah a basic book in the fiqh of the madhab of Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal and this is following on from the book which we covered previously which was the shurut al-salah or the conditions of the salah or wajibatihah or arkaniha wajibatihah the book of Shaykh Islam Muhammad Abdul Wahab which was the conditions of the salah along with its obligations or along with its pillars and its obligations and so in relation to this book here, as mentioned, it is a basic beginning book and an introduction to the ahkam in deen and the ahkam and the affair of fiqh in relation to the madhab of, or the Hanbali madhab. And before we begin anything in relation to the book itself, today's lesson is an introduction itself to the affair and the study of fiqh and what is fiqh and some of the important matters relating to the science itself and it could be stated in the mafrood it would have been more befitting it would have been more befitting if we went through this before starting the last book but alhamdulillah um, no doubt it's still beneficial to cover this and go through this inshallah and understand some of the important principles and the important uh, definitions in relation to the science itself Allah Ta'ala knows best and so the first thing that I wish to discuss with yourselves and it's like any science or anything you study the first thing you study and the first thing you go through is what does anyone know? What's the first thing you mention? Now, Jayid. Is the meaning, the ta'rif, is definition. And so we have the ta'rif of fiqh itself, the definition of fiqh. As so we have the linguistic definition as well as the shari'i definition. The linguistic definition <coughs> is al fahm al mutlaq. Or, and some scholars mention fahm shay al taqiq. So, the linguistic definition of fiqh is an absolute understanding, I have a, a complete understanding of something. So, linguistically, when we say that something is fiqh, then it is to have a linguistic or complete understanding of something. And this is the meaning as is found in the hadith of the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. مَنْ يُعِدِّ اللَّهُ بِهِ خَيْرًا يَفَقِهُ فِي الدِّينَ And whoever Allah Ta'ala wants good in a religion, he gets, whoever Allah Ta'ala wants good for, he gives you understanding in a religion. Whoever Allah Ta'ala wants good for, he gives you understanding in a religion. And so, the word being used in this narration is the word of fiqh, like understanding. The word for fiqh in this narration, or the word for understanding in this narration, is the word fiqh. Uh, so this is the definition in relation to the Sharia, or relation to the linguistically, rather, like the Lugha. Then the Istilah, in relation to the Sharia, the definition is as follows. There is ilm bi-ahkam al-shari'iya al-amaliya mustambata min adilla al-tafsiriya. And so, in the definition of the Sharia and the deen, is that it's a knowledge 
and it says knowledge of the ahkam, so it's knowledge of the rulings that are acted upon, and it's proofs which are detailed. And so, fiqh, as we understand, is knowledge of the rulings within the religion that are acted upon. Naam, and they are derived from detailed proofs. They are derived from detailed proofs. And this is fiqh in relation to the deen. And the faqih, then he is the one that is able to derive rulings and actions from those detailed proofs. This is the faqih. That the scholar of fiqh, the faqih, is the one that is able to derive these rulings. He has a degree of understanding of these particular ahkam and rulings so that he can derive a clear meaning and understanding. Now, and <clears throat> so this is the first thing, the definition. Thereafter, and so we understand the faqih as well, and thereafter, we have the understanding of who is the maqallid. And so the maqallid is the one that's not the faqih. He's, a, he's not the faqih, he's the complete opposite. The polar opposite of the faqih is the maqallid, the blind follower. And so he is the one that is not able to derive these rulings. Even if he's a person that has memorized many of the aqwal of the ulama. So maybe someone has memorized many aqwal, many statements from scholars, but however, he's not able to, to go to the texts themselves and the detailed texts themselves and derive the rulings, understand the rulings from the detailed texts. And so this is what we understand from the faqih and, and the general understanding of the maqalid, the blind follower. The next thing we want to discuss after that is when this affair of fiqh I came about, when, it, when did it come about? And the science of fiqh, when did it come about? Does anyone have an idea of when it began? From Jibreel, that's a good answer. Anyone else? After the set the time of the Salaf, okay. Not a good answer. In the time of the Nabi alayhi salatu salam. Anyone else? The science of fiqh. Go back to the let's go back to the definition. The definition is what? The definition in the terms of Sharia is what? Knowledge of the Ahkam acted upon and they're derived from the detailed proofs. Now, so it's where the person takes from the detailed proofs and then and then they understand the Ahkam. So, when will this have begun? From the time? The Prophet Reality is, Wallahu A'lam, that we would say that this began after the death of the Nabi alayhi salatu That this began after the death of the Nabi alayhi salatu Why do we say after the death and not in the time of the Prophet If you if you understand it in relation to the in relation, if you understand it in relation to the uh, definition that we just discussed. Now, because in, in relation to the ahkam, the rulings. And deriving from the rulings, then this was done directly by the su'al of the Nabi If the person goes to direct to the Prophet sallam, asks the question, then this is the ruling. Now, there's no need for this affair of deriving the ruling from the text. The person goes direct to the Prophet sallam, and derives the ruling from him Now, is that clear? Now, and so. It's, uh, it's, it began from after the death, the wafa to the Mustafa, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Now, as for in his time, then 
This was the time of the wahi. This was the period of the of the wahi, yani the revelation in of itself. And so any affair, he was the manager. Naam, he was the manager. So he were he sallallahu was the one that the people went back to when it came to al iftah when it came to seeking rulings for tower or or seeking judgments. Or he sallallahu was the one when it came to seeking understanding particular rulings and ishtihadat. No doubt they'll go back to him sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And it wouldn't be a case of the people would or the ahlul ilm of the time, as the companions, would have to derive it from the rulings that they understood. Now I'm going to go back to the Prophet Now and so this is what we understand from the from the the, the understanding of this affair of Fiqh when it began. And so when he sallallahu alayhi wasallam died, then no doubt with his death in Qata'at al-Wahi. At the time of the death of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, then we understand that the Revelation ended. The revelation ended. And so, with this, the companions began this affair of ishtihad, where they would seek to attain rulings by way of looking into the texts, looking into the texts of the Quran and the Sunnah. Now, and so, <clears throat> thereafter, you have that this action was continued, or from those, rather, from those that were known Naam to be involved in the affair of fiqh from the companions, from amongst the, Sah from amongst the Sahaba. Then you have Umar ibn Khattab. Ali ibn Abi Talib, Aisha al-Umul Mu'mineen, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, Zayd ibn Thabit, Abdullah ibn Abbas, and you can mention as well Abdullah ibn Umar. Naam, these were the companions that were known for their, uh, I for being amongst those who are amongst the fuqaha. This is something which is mentioned by Ibn Qayyim, rahimahullah. Ibn Qayyim mentions these specifically. Naam, do you want to repeat them? Tayyim. So Ibn Qayyim mentions Umar ibn Khattab, Ali ibn Abi Talib, Aisha, Abdullah ibn Mus'ud, Zayd ibn Thabit, Abdullah ibn Abbas, and Abdullah ibn Umar. Mentions each of those. And so thereafter, the Tabi'un followed them. Of course, follow the companions and follow them in a particular methodology in terms of deriving the rulings in, in, in uh, fiqh and deriving rulings from the text. And they would go back to the book and the sunnah and as well as the ijma'. So they'll go back to the book and the sunnah as well as the consensus, the ijma' of the companions. And thereafter, <coughs> in the time of the Atba'a Tabi'in, for those that came after the Tabi'in, this is when the books of Fiqh began to be written. I, this is when all these rulings started to be written down. Now, and it's regarded and it's referred to that this time of the Atba'a Tabi'in, it's regarded as being as Asr al-Dahabi, yani, a golden age in relation to the uloom of the deen. I, when the uloom, the science of the religion, were 
or began to be written down and understood. Also, this is the, I guess, the, the tarikh, the history of where we understand these ahkam came from and when they began and when the science began in of itself. As for its importance, then no doubt its importance is due to the fact that it combines between the wahyin, the fiqh itself, this is the further fiqh, fiqh itself combines between the two revelations, the kitab and the sunnah. And derives the rulings by way of that. And so, when a person has knowledge in relation to this particular science, then he's able to bring about an understanding of the ahkam, the rules of the religion, and how to act in terms of what is upon him in deen. It's just the importance of this and the father, like the virtue of it. As for the next part, then we have the sources. What are the sources that we take from in terms of the science of fiqh? What are the sources that we take from? And <clears throat> there are many, but we'll mention just a few of them, inshallah. So what's the first source you think we take from it in terms of the science? The Quran. Naam, the Quran. So the first source is the Quran. After that, the Sunnah of the Messenger of Allah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. After that, no Fahim Sahaba necessarily. Ijma, consensus. What do you understand? What do you understand by the meaning of ijma? When we say something is ijma, what does this mean? Now, something that is there's a consensus in reading that everyone agrees upon a particular ruling. So a particular ruling is agreed upon, and so thus, it is regarded as being a proof in of itself. Right? This particular ruling is agreed upon. So it's regarded as being a proof in of itself. And what's the proof that we can take this as uh, a source? What's the proof that we can take this as a source? Like Ijma'a. There's nothing, but there's something even more... more um, Direct, if you like. Is the question clear? Or shall I repeat the question? We say that ijma' is used as a, as a source. We just said ijma' is a source. Now, what is the proof that we can say that, what is the proof that this is a source, that ijma' is a source? So, with the kitab and the sunnah, this is clear. Let's go back. Kitab al-Sunnah is clear. Ijma'. Why can we say Ijma'? Is a source. You're, you're nearly there? Naam. Naam. Joint effort, inshallah. The assistant and the finish. Naam. So... The proof is the narration where I mentioned, and Nabi alayhi so I mentioned that my ummah will not unite upon falsehood. My ummah will not unite upon falsehood. No, no doubt, if, if everyone's united upon a particular affair, then we understand this is not falsehood, because this cannot be falsehood. And so thus, ijma is a proof, or is a source. After that as well, from the sources that we take, it's a fair of fair. 
is uh, Al-Qiyas. Al-Qiyas. Do you know what Al-Qiyas is? Qiyas. Analogy. What does that mean? Though? Benjamin based upon? What he's governing? No. Sort of. <laughs> That's why I asked. Cause it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not very straightforward to explain. Yes. Yeah, yeah, more or less. Now, so when you have a particular ruling that already exists, now, and there are things that are comparable, so you have a, you have a, you need to try to understand a new ruling. But there are things that are comparable to a ruling that already exists. So you compare the ruling that already exists to this new situation. So we'll give an example. So you have the example of the of the one that walks to the salah. Now, the one that walks to the salah, then what is the recompense? What is the consequence of the one that walks to the salah? What happens to the one that walks to the salah? One of his, now. So, now, so raise the level one step and, and his sins are, and we do another. Now, so this is by way of him walking to the salah. And that ruling is clear because you have a narration. So because you have the narration, then the ruling in relation to the action is clear. Does that make sense? Everyone with me so far? The ruling is clear. But that's by way of walking to the salah. So then, what about the one that we're in times now when not everyone walks, people? Drive. So this is now a particular ruling that is needed. So now because... There are comparative factors between the two. I both live in their particular home, for example, going to the Salah. This is both comparative. You can apply some of the ruling here to this. As was mentioned by Shaykh Rufaymin, rahimahullah. He mentions that perhaps and it's hoped that with every turn of the will, now when a person drives to the Salah, with every turn of the will, that the same ajr will be for the individual. The same reward is, is, will be for the individual. So, this, is partic this particular thing, there's no particular ruling that's mentioned for driving to the Salah. Naam. However, the Sheikh uses Qiyas, he uses that particular ruling that already exists, and applies it to this situation which is at hand. Does that make sense? No. This is Qiyas. Another source as well, which we have in order to understand or, or in order for this uh, science is Al-Urf. Al-Urf. And Urf is the custom of the people. Al-Urf is the custom of the people. And so the custom is also something that can be used to derive a particular ruling. An example of that is when we're stating the, the Musafir or who is the Musafir or when is someone considered to be a Musafir and generally speaking we would say that it is understood that the person the Musafir based upon the Urf I based upon when it is the Urf right? when it is the custom of the people that it's considered that you've left that particular land that particular location so, for example, the Urf would be when it's considered, for, uh, for example, here, Manchester. It would be considered when you've left Manchester. Now, when you're outside of Manchester. And Allah knows best, it's difficult for me to, um, obviously, I'm not from here, so it's difficult for me to say when it's considered you've left Manchester. But let's say, for example, London. Uh, it's considered that you've left London once you've left in anywhere outside the ring road, which is called the M25. Anywhere outside that ring road, the M25, then it's considered that you've left London. 
So if the M60 is the same in Manchester, then that's it. Allah knows best if that's the case. But it's whatever you con it's considered and it's understood amongst the people of that place that you're no longer in that place. Naam, then you're considered to be a traveler. So this is an example of urf, you know, the custom of the people. Naam, does that make sense? Jayut. The next point, which is number five, is an understanding in relation to the madahib. And as they call them in English, the schools of thought. Aye, the schools of thought. And how many madahib are there? No. Yes and no. There are, there are four prominent ones. There are four prominent madahib. So there were many. There were many different madahib. There were many different madahib in relation to the a'imma. Naam, and those that were known for ishtihad, those that were known to derive rulings from the texts. Uh, however, and based upon you know their understanding and their opinions based on texts. However, most of the, these madahib, naam, they uh, they they were less prominent. They were they they regarded as being less prominent, and they somewhat disappeared amongst the action of the Muslims in the early years. And so thus, after that we had four prominent madahib, four prominent schools of thought. And they were the, the madhab al-Hanafi, al-Maliki, al-Shafi'i, and al-Hanbali. These are the four. So Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi'i and Al-Hanbali. These are the four. And so, these four remained in prominence due to particular reasons. Naam. And there are three, there are many reasons, but there are three yeah, the prominent reasons. Naam. So, the first of them is The first reason was due to the fact that the status of those individuals that adhere to these particular schools of thought I, They were known and they, are, they were of high status whether it be by their, their knowledge or their action And so due to the fact that they had high status, right, those that the people that were upon the madahib, these four madahib, then the individuals continue to traverse upon their way. I follow them, I take them as examples. And so this is why, for example, Talib Ibn, if he was to see an individual that is of high makana, the high status by, by way of his own, He's an imam in an in of himself, and he's a follower of a particular madhab. Then it's going to, it's going to mean he's, in, he's going to incline towards that particular madhab as well. This is the first reason. The second is the fact that the students of these particular of these four imams, the students of these imams gave importance, gave much importance to spreading the seerah, yani the biographies of these Imams as well as their statements as well as spreading the teachings, the, the particular madhab. So the students of these particular Imams had great, gave great importance to this affair of spreading that which the Imams were upon and that which they were teaching from their end. And then the third, from these reasons, is that particular rulers gave importance to specific madahib, and from them were these four madahib, from these four, these four. Madahib. 
And this occurred يعني, after their death of each of these Imams until the time that we're living in now. So that the leaders would give much importance. So these are the three main reasons why you see that these Madahib are still present in the day in this day and age. And these are the three main reasons. So the first of them was what? The status of those that, those that followed that particular madhab. Now, their status ilmiyan. That they had a particular status in terms of the knowledge that they possessed. The second, the students that were, they were harith, they had, they were steadfast upon spreading that knowledge. And then the third, The third is the importance, but who gave importance to them as well? Rulers. Rulers gave importance to the madahib of particular of the particular imma, the madahib of particular imma, after their death until the day that we're living in now. Uh, along with that, I just, want to, I just want to mention a very brief, something very brief in relation to each of them. So we have the first. Of them who was Abu Hanifa. And he was Abu Hanifa, his name was Abu Hanifa, and Umar ibn Thabit ibn Qais. And he was from Kufa. And he, Rahimahullah, died in the year 150 after Hijrah. So, and from the statements that I know that have come from him, is his statement: "If I could to call him, you call if Kitab Allah Taala, wa khabr Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, fatruku kole, fatruku kodi." So he's mentioned that if I say a statement that is opposed. The book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that which is we've been informed by the Messenger وسلم, then leave my statement. Leave my statement. A second thing from what he said as well, is his statement. So he mentions that it's not befitting, it's not correct. That the one that does not know my proofs, that he gives a verdict based upon my speech. And so no doubt this is something which is in opposition to what you may see, where a person may state that this is from the madhab of my imam. So I'm doing this because my imam said to do this. No, rather, it's upon the person to be upon the proofs and be upon the sunnah. And he has to be aware of the proofs as well. It doesn't merely just state, it state that this is the statement of my imam, so this is what I'm going to do. From his prominent students was Abu Yusuf Ya'qub Ibrahim Ansari. Abu Yusuf Ya'qub Ibn Ibrahim Ansari. Likewise, from them as well, was Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani. Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani. These are from the students of Al-Imam Abu Hanifa. Thereafter, after Abu Hanifa, then we have who? Malik. Imam Malik, and his name? He is Abu Abdullah Malik ibn Anas ibn Malik ibn Abi Amir al-Asbahi. 
So he's Abu Abdullah Malik Ibn Anas Ibn Malik Asbahi, and he is the Imam of Dar al-Hijra. He's the Imam of Dar al-Hijra. Dar al-Hijra referring to? <coughs> Al-Madina, of course. Dar al-Hijra. And he, Rahimahullah, died in the year 179 after Hijra. He died in the year 179 after the Hijra. And it's important to know I, when the, some of the imma lived and when they died so that a person is able to differentiate and understand the, the era in which that imam, particular imam lived. I, when, this, when did this imam live? Naam. And so, so this is why it's, it's whenever you hear uh, a biography of, of a particular individual they will mention uh, the era in which they lived as well. Now, and he, from the statement that he's made, Rahimahullah, will say, Imamin Ahadin, Illa Yukhav min Kauli, Wa Yutrak, Illa Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa So from his statement, is the statement that he mentions that there's no one. Except there's no person that there's alive here, and except that his statement will be taken or is left, except for the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So there's no one except that his, his statement can be taken or it can be left, except for the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And again, from his students. Then you have Abu Abdullah Abdurrahman ibn Qasim al-Utqi al-Misri. And you know Abdurrah he's known as Abdurrahman ibn Qasim. Abdurrahman ibn Qasim. He's known as Abdurrahman ibn Qasim. He was Abu Abdullah Abdurrahman ibn Qasim. From the students of Imam Ahmed. Likewise as well, you had Abdullah ibn Wahb. Abdullah ibn Wahb from the students of Imam Malik and he was Abu Muhammad Abdullah ibn Wahb ibn Muslim al-Misri so that's this is the Imam Malik Rahimahullah after then you have who? Imam Shafi. No, Imam Shafi. And his name is Abu Abdullah Muhammad Ibn Idris Ibn Abbas Shafi. So Abu Abdullah Muhammad Ibn Idris Ibn Abbas Shafi. And he died in Misr and in Egypt. He died in Egypt in the year 204 after the Hijrah. So he died in Egypt in the year 204 after the Hijrah. Now, and from his statements is the statement إِذَا صَحَ الْحَدِيثِ فَهُوَ مَذْهَبِ إِذَا صَحَ الْحَدِيثِ فَهُوَ مَذْهَبِ That if a hadith is sahih, then it is my madhab. Then it's from my madhab. Now, And from his prominent students, 
is a Imam al-Muzni, Imam al-Muzni, and his name is Abu Ibrahim Ismail ibn Yahya al-Muzni, al-Misri. And from his students as well is Al-Bawaiti. And he is Abu Yaqub Yusuf ibn Yahya Al-Bawaiti. Now, and then finally we have who? Imam Ahmed. Now, the Hanbali Madhab. And his name is? Abu Abdullah, Ahmed ibn Muhammad ibn Hanbal, al-Shaybani, and he died, rahimahullah, in the year 241 after the Hijrah. He died in the year 241 after the Hijrah. And from his statement, subhanahu is the statement, لا تقلدوني ولا تقلدوا مالكا ولا شافعي ولا شافعي ولا العزائي ولا الثور خذوا من حيث أخذوا So he mentioned, do not blind follow me. Do not blind follow me, nor do you blind follow Malik, Shafi'i, Awza'i, or Athori, nor Athori. Rather, take from where they took. I take from it's where they took. And from his most prominent students, you have Ibrahim al-Harbi and his name was Abu Ishaq Ibrahim ibn Ishaq ibn Ibrahim al-Harbi and likewise Al-Maymuni Al-Maymuni who is Abu al-Hasan Abdul Malik Ibn Abdul Hamid Al Maymuni. And so these were the four Imams and the four Madahib. And no doubt you find some differences in between between some of the rulers that you find in terms of the Madahib. However, if we go back to and we look at and we reflect upon the statements of each of them, what do they all have in common? Do not blind follow and rather take from the book of Allah and the sunnah of the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa so they encourage the taking of from the book of Allah and the sunnah of the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa and this is where we take our deliyah. Now, as for the fact, that the, the next point, which is the sixth, is in relation to the fact that you may find different and why does this occur? Right, why does different occur? From them, from the reasons that differing occurs, I am in in ahkam and rulings, and why someone might have a particular ruling, another one have another. From them, the reasons is adam bulugh dalil li ba'd ulama wa bulughi li akhirin. So from these reasons is that the dalil, the proof, reaches some ulama but has not reached others. So the proof has reached some of the ulama, but it's not reached others. So due to that, they mention a particular ruling. So he's mentioned a particular ruling based on the delete that he has at his disposal. The next 
is that they may differ about the thabut, whether a particular ruling is affirmed. Adam of thabut a delil. So they differ about whether the delil is affirmed. So one particular piece of proof is affirmed over another. Now, another reason is the fact that they may differ in an understanding of a particular proof. So one thing, they may understand one thing over another. Now, another reason is that it's possible that a hadith which is sahih has reached a, uh, an alim. However, it's mansukh, it's abrogated. However, the alim does not know it's abrogated. And so thus, he makes a ruling based upon the fact that he has a dalil which is at his disposal, but he's not aware that it's abrogated. Or as well, he may not consider it to be abrogated. So he may be aware that some say it's abrogated, but he doesn't consider it to be abrogated himself. Now, or another reason as well is that a person may believe that he has a proof that is stronger now, a particular proof which is stronger than the one which is presented. Another reason for the differing is that the person is using a proof or is using as a proof a hadith which is da'if. That an alim is using a, as a proof a hadith which is da'if or that which they're deriving from the hadith is da'if itself. No, does that make sense? So they're using the hadith which is da'if or what they're deriving from the hadith is da'if in itself. Either the, the ra'i, the opinion. Now, or it's possible as well that a person takes a text upon its understanding as shari'i. However, it should be understood lughawi. So there may be a word within the narration or a text and it should be understood linguistically. And the correct understanding is linguistically. However, they've understood it in the shari'a terms. Does that make sense? Or the opposite as well. That a person has took a particular wording in its linguistic understanding, but they should under, they should have understood it in their shari'i understanding. And so thus, what occurs when you have differing and what is upon the mushtahid, the individual that is upon uh, the jihad, when it's differing, I will seek to derive a ruling. The first thing he does is what? Say if he has two texts and he sees that they, maybe these two texts um, oppose one another. Or if it was apparent that they are contradictory to one another. What does he do? These are particular steps. One, two, three, four, five. What's the first thing he does? So he sees a text, and, it, and force apparently contradicts it, and it contradicts this text. Not necessarily. Try it before that. Try to reconcile. What does that mean? We say try to reconcile. What does that mean? Bring them together, meaning try to find a scenario where this text and this text can both be both be 
appropriate and accurate at the same time. So where they both could be correct at the same time. And it's not a case that they actually, it's not an actual contradiction, but they both can actually be correct. So you try to reconcile. Right. If you can't reconcile, then what? Something before that. See, if you if one maybe abrogated the other, if one text is abrogated the other, does that make sense? So one text may have abrogated the other. So see if one text abrogated the other. How do we? Need, what do we need though? Once once what's the specific thing we need for that though? To know if one has abrogated the other. The times, we need to know. Then there has to be some something which indicates tarikh. Something that indicates specific times that this has occurred. Right? So, it has to be either something is mentioned directly in the narration where it says, for example, we were the, we were the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa at this battle. For example. So, we know if, if, if he's saying it's at this battle, then this is when it occurred. Or, the narration mentions specifically abrogation. So, you may find that the narration mentions that before... This was the ruling, but now this is the ruling. Or before, I used to allow you to do this action, but now you have to do this action. Does that make sense? So, there's, so it's mentioned explicitly the abrogation. Now, as an example, so where they used to pray towards Al-Quds, and then the, the ruling came for him to pray towards Yani Makkah. That's a direct abrogation. Or the domestic now, the domestic tongue, the ruling of the domestic tongue now. Sad. Or uh, we're to mention um, the zani. I the zani. What was the what was the original ruling upon the one that committed zina? Do you know? Or the original punishment for the one that committed zina? Before that? Now. That they would be kept within the home. Now they'll be kept within the home. And... Uh, this was the particular ruling that they were kept in the home. And then the ayah mentions, I want to try to find the ayah. Do you have a mushaf? Have a mushaf to hand? Sorry. Let's sort this out. Zakallah khair. So the ayah begins with "Yatina fahishas min nisa, yikum fat fastashuhul arbaatan arba fastashu alayhinna arbaatan minkum, fa inshahidu amsiku, fa inshahidu fa amsiku hunna fil biyuti hatta yatawafa hunna almaut, aw yajalallahu lahunna sabila." Nam, the ruling would be that they will be held and they will be kept within the homes. It's in Surah An-Nisa, ayah fifteen. And thereafter, Allah Ta'ala mentions the end of the ayah, or Allah Ta'ala has made a way out for them, or has made a way out now for them. This ayah mentions specifically, or Then you have the narration that comes after that, where the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam mentions, that Allah Ta'ala has made for them a way out. Meaning what? So the ayah is mentioning previously now this particular uquba. 
that they be held within the kept within the homes until Allah until a made a way out was made for them. And then the hadith mentions and Allah has made a way for them. Referring directly to the ayah. Naam, that this is good. The ayah is referring to this is the ruling until something occurs. Thereafter, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, alludes directly to that particular ayah. I mean that that which was found within the ayah is thus abrogated due to what will come after. Then he mentions وسلم, the akuba of the stoning. Naam, does it make sense? So this is this is an example of that. Tabs, this is where if you talk about Nasik al-Mansur. This is when you're talking about an abrogation of the ayah. So what about if there is no abrogation? Or if, what about if we don't have, we don't have any um, understand or now there's nothing to indicate particular timings. Then what? That's what I mentioned earlier. Now, so not necessarily just the narration, the chain of narration, but we seek to find which of the two texts is stronger. Which of the two texts is stronger? So, of course, this would only occur if we were talking about uh, two hadith. Because if it's an ayah and a hadith, then, of course, the ayah is muqaddam. But if we're talking about uh, two, two hadith, then we look at which of the two narrations would be stronger. And it's always, always going to be the case that one is going to be stronger than the other. It's impossible that you're going to find that they're at equal strength. Naam, it's impossible that you find that what they're all, they're all at equal strength. Naam, an example of that, an example of that is, uh, this is the, you find two narrations, and these two narrations differ with one another. It's in, I forget the narration now, but it's in relation to buyu, it's in relation to buying and selling. And but these two these two narrations, on the face of it. Everyone in the chain of narration are from the thiqat. Everyone in the chain of narration are all trustworthy. So they're both strong narrations. However, this narration, there's one narration that has come from a group of individuals that narrate from Hamad ibn Salama. Naam, so there's a group of individuals that narrate from Hamad ibn Salama. And another group of individuals that narrate from Hamad ibn Salama as well. Naam, does that make sense so far? But these two narrations contradict each other. These set of individuals are known to be from the khawas of Hamad ibn Salama. Now, so they are known to be from those that were the closest to Hamad ibn Salama. His closest students. And they're all thiqat, of course. These are not known to be from his closest students, but they're narrating from him. And they're all trustworthy as well. So which one is stronger now? Those that are from his strongest students. Those that are from the closest to him. Because they narrate from, they would, they would narrate from him more accurately than others. And so thus, you find that anytime there is any contradiction, or that which appears to be a contradiction between two texts, this is a manner in which the person deals with that. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. And we'll conclude here, inshallah ta'ala. Jazakumullahu khaira. Barakallahu fikum. And inshallah, in our next lesson, we'll begin with the text of uh, Umdat al Fiqh from beginning with Kitab al Tahara. So, beginning with the book of purification, inshallah. And uh, like I said, beginning of all the books, that uh, it's important that the brothers, inshallah, try to continue and try to be um, as consistent as they can with the lessons. And. Um, you know, we try and inshallah within these lessons try to benefit one another within uh, you know within these durus. But it does require a degree of consistency, like most things in life. So, you know, as I mentioned, it's important inshallah the brothers that we come next week as well and we continue from where we left off and that we don't just come back when we begin Kitab and Nikah. Now we begin from the, the beginning of the book all the way through, inshallah. جزاكم الله خيرا وبارك الله فيكم وصلى الله وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم نعم تفق عن هداية
the fiqh is the understanding particularly of, of the rulings and deriving the rulings. Hidayah is guidance itself, generally guidance. So guidance to the haqq, being guided to the truth. So uh, a person, no doubt, if he, if he receives hidayah, then this will aid him in his fiqh, aid him in his understanding of, of the truth. But they, um, hidayah is general for everything in terms of our religion. Now, barakallah fiqh. Zakhm nakhir.